You're listening to podcast audio from Radiant Church, located in Bay City, Michigan. For more information on Radiant Church, you can check us out on www.radiantbc.com or follow us on social media at Radiant Bay City. All right. Good morning once again, Radiant Church. How are you guys doing? Good. Are some of you still asleep from the turkey on Thursday? You guys still a little sleepy? And Thanksgiving was absolutely awesome in our household, an awesome time to gather with family, eat too much good food, and rest. I hope it's been a week of rest for you and your family. Again, my name is Marcus. I'm one of the pastors here at Radiant Church. And if you are new to the church, again, a special welcome to you and a special welcome to those of you watching online. Thank you so much for tuning in and being being with us this morning from either your living room or your office, wherever you happen to be watching. Wanted to take a quick moment as well to invite you guys to our Christmas Eve service. And Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, which it hasn't been that for a while. So we're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to have a little bit different service time. So as you can see behind me, 9 a.m., 10.30, and noon. 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and noon. Make sure to write those down and put a reminder in your calendar to join us on that day as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. If you need more information on what sort of classes are available for kiddos and stuff, please visit our website, radiantbc.com. Check that out. It'll have more specifics on what those services will look like. So please join us again Christmas Eve as we celebrate together. Um, Today, we're going to be taking a quick break from our series Jesus and the End Times, which Pastor Marco has been taking us through for, uh, this will be week five coming up next week. If you were here, uh, if you were here this morning and you were looking forward to that series, I just want to invite you back next Sunday. We're going to pick that back up with part number five. But today, I do believe that this message that I have for us is still pertinent in this season, in this time that we find ourselves. In fact, uh, the the motive behind today's message was kind of spurred on by the times that we're finding ourselves in. And then Jesus commanded Matthew 24 to not be deceived. That's kind of where the heart from this comes, is Jesus' command to not be deceived in these times. So I do feel that today's message is still very pertinent for what we're going through. And my goal is to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity for those of you who are believers an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to assess our hearts and to show us if there's any condition of the heart that we need to work on to not be deceived in this time. Also, for those of you who would say, you know, I'm not a Christian, I'm exploring the faith, I'm really just kind of looking for answers to questions that I've had for quite some time, my prayer is is that the Holy Spirit would give you an opportunity to receive God's word afresh almost like a blank slate, a start over, a restart for your heart to be molded and shaped by the word of God, that you would leave this place, maybe not professing Christ as Lord right away, but that you would actually wrestle with the word of God going forward over the next few days and weeks. And this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. I have a ton of content. This is probably the longest message I've ever written, so I don't want to like speed through it, but at the same time, I don't want to lollygag. So we're going to kind of get right into things today. We're going to open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 8. So Luke chapter 8, verse 4, and this is the parable of the sower. We're going to read that together quick. Verse 4, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he's scattering the seeds, some fell along the path that was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some of the seed fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Would you join me as we pray for the rest of the message this morning? Heavenly Father, we pray for those ears to hear your word this morning. Holy Spirit, do what I can't do and change hearts in this place. Um, Lord, whatever uh, is of me and not of you, I just pray that it would fall to the side. And God, that you would use this message to minister deeply to your people today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Helen Keller once said, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. 
Pliny the Elder is famous for saying, home is where the heart is. We have that over our mantles in a lot of our houses and things. This one was originally coined by Emily Dickinson, but made famous by Woody Allen in a 2001 Times article magazine. And this is something that was often quoted in like music or like secular thinking. You might want to double check where this came from because it's a, it's a little weird actually. Where, well, the reason behind why he said this. And he said this, the heart wants what it wants. And lastly, Charles Dickens says this, a loving heart is the truest wisdom. Church, why is it that we attribute a muscle in our chest whose sole function is to pump blood through our body? Why do we attribute to it these things of like feelings and desires, a source of belonging, a sense of wisdom and discernment? Why is it that we do that? We know that it's just a life-sustaining organ, yet we personify it with these, this ability to feel such things or this source of knowledge, this source of desire. Why do we do that? Well, if we actually look at the Bible, especially the ancient Hebrew text, we see a word for the heart, and it's levav or lev. Now, these ancient writers were they're well aware that the heart is an organ that sustains the human life. They were well aware of this. But what they didn't have a concept for was the human brain. They didn't really have an understanding of what that was. So the heart became this place of understanding, intellect, knowledge, desire, the sense of belonging, our affections, things of that nature. In fact, even the term brokenhearted was originated in the Bible. So this concept that our heart can feel these things is a very biblical understanding of the human heart. In fact, Proverbs 4.23 states it very succinctly. It says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. According to the biblical authors, the heart is the source of what we do and who we are. This is important to understand because this is going to be the framework from which we're going to look at Jesus' teaching of the parable of the sower. This is absolutely foundational because what we're going to find out is this, is this is a conversation or a teaching about the human heart. And we need to understand in Jesus' mind what is he getting at. What he's getting at is that the human heart is the source of everything that flows from us and we need to be mindful of that, protective of that, and conscientious of that. So that's why this teaching is so very important. Now again, the parable of the sower shows up in the three synoptic gospels. So you Matthew, Mark, Luke, you can read it in all three of those. Today we're going to be looking primarily at Luke. It's Luke 8. Um, I might reference Matthew a little bit more, a little bit here and there as well, because there's some more colorful language in there, more descriptive language in certain parts. Um, but we're going to do this, we're going to have like three steps for each portion, because what we find out here is that Jesus actually explains the parable. This doesn't happen all the time. Jesus oftentimes will give us the illustration or the metaphors or the, you know, the, the imagery, but not necessarily go into the heart of what's going on behind that. We're, we're left to interpret that on our own some, some of these times. But in this one, he actually pulls the disciples aside and goes, hey, this is what I was talking about. So we're going to do three things with each, with each of these soil. You know, we're going to go into the soils here. We're going to go into four different types of soil which represent our hearts. First off, we're going to look at the metaphor or the illustration that Jesus gives. Then we're going to jump a few verses down to the explanation. So we're going to skip a bunch. We're going to be hop, skipping, and jumping all over the place. So then we're going to look at the explanation he gives. And then lastly, we're going to jump somewhere in the Gospels to look at a case study of each one of these heart conditions that Jesus himself encounters and see what we can learn from there. So we're going to dive right on in. We're just going to get right into this. We're going to start off with the first heart, and that's going to be shown in Luke 8, verses 4 and 5. You guys want to turn your Bibles with me there. It says this again. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and it was trampled on, and birds ate it up. So we get this metaphor of a path, and if you've seen like a really well-carved-out path, it's very flat, it's very 
you can't get through that thing. It is stone solid. And these seeds are just scattering on there. They're being trampled on by foot. And birds are actually picking them up and eating them before they can do anything. We're going to jump down now to verse 11 for the explanation. It says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. We find uh, with this kind of an intro to the explanation. We find three quick things. First off, we find this. The seed in this parable is the word of God. So in Jesus' context, this is him. The word would be him preaching, teaching, uh, sharing that he is the son of God. It would be his disciples going out and ministering to people. In today's context, it would be this. It would be sitting in a church service, listening to the word of God, being preached and taught. It would be sitting in your small group, discussing the word of God together. It would be coming to a women's night and going through a study together. That would be the context for here. So seed is the word of God. Number two, we find out that the ground is representative of different heart types, which is why we just talked about that. The importance of the human heart and what that means biblically and the fact that Jesus wants to get to the heart of the issue. Number three, we find this. The type of ground, a.k.a. The, the heart, it affects the word's ability to produce a crop. The condition of our heart affects God's word's ability to, to produce a crop in our lives. This first example from Jesus doesn't go so hot. <laughs> the word of God doesn't even stand a chance. The moment that the seed is scattered, the enemy comes and snatches it away. Doesn't even give it an opportunity to take root. I call the path the hard heart. This is the heart that already has it figured out. It's not very teachable. It's not very humble. It's proud. It's resistant to God's word, so much so that when it hears it, it scoffs at it, it brushes it to the side, and the enemy comes and snatches it up. For our first case study, I want to look at something early on in Jesus' ministry. It's when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue, and he goes to teach those who have known him since he was a kid. It says this, Luke 4, verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. He, being Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as it was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord. So Jesus is reading scripture at that point in time, the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, he didn't sit down because he was done. He actually sat down to teach. So in the synagogue, they would go up, read the word, and then they would go sit down and teach in their midst. As he does this, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Everybody was locked in. He began by saying to them, today, this is a bold statement. If a preacher went and did this right now, if I did this right now, y'all would be, do what they do next. So he began by saying to them, today, the scripture that I just read is fulfilled in your hearing. All of them spoke well of him and were amazed and gracious and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they started thinking, isn't this Joseph's son? Wait, we know this guy. He built the bunk beds for the twins, didn't he? Yeah. He's the one that's hanging out with all the fishermen, right? He's got the mom that we think we she cheated on her down him, right? That's right? Yeah, that's him. Okay, okay. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in our hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Skip down to verses 28 through 30. It says this, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Their minds changed very quickly. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. 
mob mentality instantly takes over. I'm just trying to think about how the chosen will do this one day on TV. Jesus is getting escorted out the synagogue, just manhandled all the way down to the top of a hill, getting ready to chuck him off. But then it says, this is verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So somehow Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, was just like, nah, I'm not yet. <laughs> not yet. So I was reading about this, doing some studying on this, and uh, I was reading through the New Bible Commentary, and the author says this about this portion of Scripture. Initial amazement turned into hostility as the audience took exception to one of their known, who they knew as Joseph's son, for making such impressive claims for himself. They wanted visible proof and validity of his claims before their own eyes, like mighty works which he has been rumored to do in Capernaum. We see the same mindset a ton nowadays. Yeah, I've read the Bible. Jesus, oh yeah, so on board, you know, loving the, you know, healing the sick, you know, loving people, you know. Uh, I love what it says about, you know, taking care of orphans and widows. Yeah, Jesus is a great moral teacher. My gosh, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Oh my gosh, it's, a, it's brilliant. He's amazing. He's so knowledgeable. He's so kind. Son of God, though, uh, I don't know about that one. I think I cut, I think I cut it off right there. Good moral teacher, great ethics, great worldview, social justice. Yeah, Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, son of God. Let's ask a little too much. It's a little too much. Can I be real with you guys? You can't separate those two things. You can't separate. You can't call Jesus good, a good moral teacher, and then say, but he's wrong about him being the son of God. Imagine me preaching a fire sermon Coming up here, everybody's, you know, just speaking in tongues and going off and everything's, everybody's just giving their heart to the Lord. And then I say, but, you know, but you know what? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Everyone who comes to Marcus shall be saved. <laughs> Every single word I said before that would mean jack squat. <laughs> Y'all would be like, what church am I at? What's going on? Why is that? Because you can't separate those two. If you fall in team Jesus was a good moral teacher, he, you, are, you can't. He's either who he said he was or a raving lunatic. And that's not to blaspheme or to knock on my Savior. That is just the truth. That is the truth. You cannot, you have to hold those two in tension. You have to merge those two together. You can't separate them. And that idea pre pervades so much of our culture. And it's because we have hearts like the path. We have hard hearts. And hard hearts are incapable of receiving the truth of God's word. It's just the truth. It's what Jesus is telling us here. It's a sober thing to write. I didn't like writing that statement in my notes. I wish it were the opposite. I wish it were not true. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we have hard hearts like the path, it is absolutely incapable of receiving the truth of God's word. So that's our first heart. Feeling good? Glad you came to church today? Yay. <laughs> um, but we've got three more to look at, so let's take a look at our next heart. And we're going to jump down uh, to ver to back to Luke 8, and we're going to be in verses 6 and 13. 6 and 13. So six, again, this is the metaphor illustration from Jesus from the parable. It says, some fell, seeds that is, fell on rocky ground. And when the plant came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. That's the illustration. Thirteen, the explanation. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. They're instantly excited about it. It's transformative. It's life-giving but they don't have any root. They believe it for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. I absolutely love how honest Jesus is with this. He calls it like he sees it. He tells his disciples straight up, there are gonna be some who hear our message and don't care. Or there's gonna be some who hear our message and they're gonna be on cloud nine. They're going to be excited. They're going to feel the, the, the Spirit's power. They're going to be absolutely transformed, seemingly, until 
something comes up that's either better or something that comes up that's challenging or something that rubs them the wrong way. I think the prime example for our case study would be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I want to encourage you guys, this is a very, very long chapter in the Bible. During your private time this week, take some time and read it through. I do not have time enough today to go through everything. It honestly deserves its own Sunday. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of set the stage, talk about what Jesus says, and the teaching that kind of makes this, that allows this to happen and exposes this sort of heart in his people. So Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and just fed 5,000 people. That is a miracle in and of itself. Just a few fish, a few loaves. He was able to multiply it and feed an immense amount of people. Afterward, Jesus, knowing their hearts, had this thought. He said, they are going to try to make me king by force. This is an agrarian culture. Money or food equals money, right? Food equals money. Like if you have food, you have power. If you have food, you have money. They see this man literally make money out of nothing, basically. And they're enamored, and he knows their hearts. And he's like, okay, I need to walk away from this. I need to go be with my father. I need to separate myself from this. For some reason, as the day moves on, it gets closer to night, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, decide to sail off without him. I read through the text just to see if I missed something. It doesn't really say exactly why they chose to do that. I don't know if Jesus was like, hey, don't worry about it. If you don't see me by then, just go. I don't know. But they bounce. They leave without Jesus. This is when Jesus decides to just take a casual stroll across the lake. <laughs> so he goes and meets them on the other side. So that's the context. Everybody's gone. The crowd's waking up from their, you know, think about the Thanksgiving stupor where you're just like the post-Thanksgiving nap. You're filled to the brim and you're just like, huh? Lions lost? Ah, oh, sounds about right. Okay. So not this season, at least. They've been doing well, which is good. So they're waking up, and this is where we kind of pick things up here. The crowd is finally realizing that they are all gone. So this is John 6, verse 24 and 20, through 26. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus' answer is amazing. For those of you who are thinking like, okay, you know, why is it that we always have free food at church events and stuff? Because if you feed them, they will come. It's a biblical principle that even Jesus knew for his ministry. So Jesus answers that. He says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He's calling them out. He's like, y'all just happy that I fed you. Now, Jesus goes into one of his most divisive teachings. He goes into manna from heaven, uh, what it means to uh, participate in communion with him. Like, it's, it's a whole thing. I, again, I want to tell you guys, read John 6. It is, it is amazing, but it's too much for us to get into right now. So he's tr they're trying to be like, hey, you know, are you going to feed us again? Where'd that come from? Oh, you're saying, okay, you're the, you're the manna from heaven? You're what are you saying now? And Jesus culminates in verse 53, and they take him literally on this. And he says, Jesus said to them, very truly to you, uh, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, so if you eat my flesh and drink his blood, unless you do that, you have no life. They're like, but the fish and bread was fine. We don't need to eat you. Like, can we go back to that, Jesus? Like, like, let's reverse it a little bit. And he's like, no, like, this is what I'm getting at. It's not about that. It's not to be filled uh, physically. It's to be filled spiritually. And this disheartened many of his followers. Many. In verse 60, they even say this. They say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? How cool is that that that's in the Bible? Have you ever been to a, like, a, one of our sermons and been like, man, that's really tough. That's really tough. Even the disciples were like, man, this is the Son of God. And I'm like, this is really tough, Lord. Come on, throw me a bone here. So he says, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And, and verse 60 says, many fell away. Verse 66 says, many fell away. This is the fickle heart. The heart of rocks is the fickle heart. The disciples that fell away were in it for the wrong thing. They were in it for the hype. They were in it for the supernatural provision. 
And as soon as their expectations were subverted or their beliefs were challenged, they fell off. Their faith withered and died. Matthew says it, instead of uh, no moisture, it says that there was no root and the plant was scorched. Can I be real? So I'm, I'm what's called the Connections Pastor, which is a non-denominational church way of saying I help getting people involved here. I help like onboarding people and getting people, you know, that are new to the church, um, connected, getting people into small groups and community. And my, one of my main roles is uh, connecting with you guys. So those connection cards actually go to a person and that person is me. I reach out to you. I send you an email. Wow. And then sometimes by the grace of God, people check their emails <laughs> and even hit the reply button. And I say, hallelujah, praise Jesus. But, these, but, but in this moment, people usually that do that, they've experienced for the first time in their life a church where people actually like being here. Whoa, that's a novel idea. People like church. Holy cow, wow. Kids that want to go to class? What? Yeah, nuts, right? Come on. I need you up here as my hype man, Pastor. Get on up here. <laughs> They experience teaching in a powerful and humble and truthful manner. They experience the powerful, tangible presence of the Lord through worship. It is a transformative experience for them. And I get to take them out for coffee, and I get to hear their story, and I get to hear what the Lord did on that morning, and then nothing. Radio silence. Hey, man. Just checking in on you. And I'm not trying to be a bother. I'm not trying to dox your information either. I'm just trying to, you know, connect with you. How can I get you plugged into the church? How can we help you in your faith journey? How can we help disciple you? Radio silence. I don't, and I could assume what happens. I don't know. But what we tend to find is that people have fickle hearts. They move from thing to thing, fad to fad, relationship to relationship, Addiction to addiction, church to church, place to place, job to job, all of these things, they bounce from one place to another, never long enough to actually develop some form of substance in their life. And we need that to change. This was probably the hardest prompt for me to write. All of this is true because fickle hearts are unwilling to wrestle with the uncomfortable truths of God's word. Jesus said it, not me. Yell at him. <laughs> the fickle hearts are unwilling to wrestle with the uncomfortable truths of God's word. They see the next shiny bright thing and they go to that. The moment it's, their expectations are subverted, they fall away. That's 0 for 2, church. 0 for 2 with the hearts. Will the next one do better? Let's look at the seed that fell among the thorns. And this is Luke 8, 7, and 14. Again, the metaphor, the illustration in verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Verse 14, the explanation. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by what? Life's worries, riches, or as Matthew says, the deceitfulness of wealth, and pleasures of life, and they do not mature. It's not looking very good for this heart either. <laughs> I think we're going to be 0 for 3, 0 for 3. According to Jesus, there's a condition of the heart where it seems as if God's word truly is working. It's actually producing something. It's a plant is growing. People are growing in faith. They're growing in their discipleship. They're, they're praying more frequently. They're reading and understanding the word of God, but... Something else is growing in the background. The thorns and weeds are growing alongside this plant. And in the end, unfortunately, it's the weeds and the thorns that tend to win out. The case study I chose for this one, which I thought was kind of a layup, but still, is Luke 18, the rich young ruler. Most of you are probably familiar with it, but we're going to take a look at this here. Luke 18 Verses 18 through 27. 
a certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? No one, Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Oh, and by the way, don't forget, honor your mom and dad. Make sure to honor your mom and dad. The ruler looks and he looks and says, well, all these things I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, yeah, but you're lacking one thing still. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. When the ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard, oh, this is, this is a gut punch. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this then asked, who then can be saved? <laughs> like, that's a legit question. Like, who's, who can be saved then? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's funny here is if you guys know Peter, Peter right after this is like, hey, but Jesus, we, we, left, we left everything. We left, remember, Jesus, we left everything for you. Remember that. So we're, we're good on this one. <laughs> Jesus does in the last sentence, though, give us a little bit of hope. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The rich ruler, though, at the beginning, seemingly at first, is obedient to God's word. He holds true to, you know, hey, you know, I don't kill people, I don't steal, I don't lie. And yeah, I'm pretty, you know, I honor my mom and dad, I do all those good things. But Jesus digs deeper and exposes something he wasn't aware of. His idolatrous God, money. This was the source of his identity. This was the source of his meaning. This was the source of his power. And Jesus basically asks, who's your Lord, God or money? And the ruler walks away from Scripture, never to be seen again, sad and depressed. This is the anxious and skeptical heart. Notice that Jesus' parable didn't just suggest that this can happen, it actually says it pretty matter-of-fact. It's very matter-of-fact language that it will happen. If this is a truth that, we need, that needed to be taught in ancient Israel, how much more does this need to be taught today? We live in the wealthiest nation in the world. I heard it once said this way, if you have enough money to put change in your cup holder, you are richer than 98% of this world. How much more do we need to hear this? Not only that, we live in one of the most wearisome, worrisome and anxious cultures ever. Mark Sayers, a very brilliant man from Australia who's a cultural commentator and pastor, said it this way, we are dealing with an epidemic of ambient anxiety. There's just this fuzz in the background of every single human heart nowadays. Everyone is dealing with ambient anxiety. Now, I was going to name this heart just the anxious heart, but I felt like it needed more because really, and I'm going to probably jump down a little bit further. I think I did this last service too. This is the truth, is the anxious and skeptical heart does not fully trust God's word. And I put skeptical in there to, to give it a little bit more oomph because anxiety often comes from misplaced trust. It's self-reliance. You're fully self-reliant on yourself and you don't have trust in, in the Lord. So adding skepticism in there, I think, was just necessary to flesh that out a little bit more. We need to hear this right here, right now in 2023 America because we need to, to really really, really take Jesus seriously when he says that it is nearly impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He gives us hope, though. If you actually read the verses prior to the story, it's Jesus talking or teaching, and little kids come up to him, 
And he says, let the kids come to me. Let the kids come to me. He says, because the kingdom of God goes to these ones. It goes to these ones. Why does he say that? Because it's childlike faith. Absolute trust. Unhindered by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the pleasures of life. We need to revert back to childlike faith in our God. Oh for three. <laughs> oh for three. Last one. This one is the good soil, aka the soft heart. Luke 8:8, 8, 8, the illustration. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more, more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then the explanation in verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble heart, noble and good heart, sorry, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a good crop. You would think with qualifiers like this, Jesus would be seen roaming around the countryside teaching and preaching with the religious rulers, the learned, the wise, the devout. You would see him spending time with more people at the synagogue and you know, rubbing elbows with the, the, the rulers at the Sanhedrin council. But that's not what we see. When we started the verses this, uh, this morning, we actually skipped verses one through three. And I want to go back to them really, really quick because we see a, a list from Luke of the people who are actually traveling with Jesus at this time. It says this in Luke 8, 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from town to town, village, uh, from town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. The 12 and women cured of evil spirits and diseases. We don't see Jesus and his word taking root in the religious rulers or the wise. We see it with his disciples, the 12. Oftentimes, I think we tend to personify like in our minds or make it seem like the disciples are these like rock stars of the faith when they met Jesus. Like they instantly had it. Like they were instantly just like no doubt, all faith, Right answers all the time. Have you watched The Chosen? They're a wild bunch, man. You have Matthew, who is a literal traitor to his people to gain more money as a tax collector. A complete traitor. You have Peter, who goes on to deny Jesus, who's a hothead that acts out in violence. These are ordinary men, so much so that in Acts, after the ascension, these men are brought in front of the Sanhedrin, these wise group of devout Jews. And what do they say about them? He's like, these guys are causing the ruckus. These are the ones doing the... They're ordinary, unschooled men. How? These are normal, everyday, average men. And the women... Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. Luke notes that these women were healed from infirmities and evil spirits. When these women first met Jesus, they were bound and they needed saving. These are the women we see with our Savior, broken in, verses, in chapter 7 of Luke, even before that, we see a faith-filled centurion who is literally the, the epitome of the oppression that the Jews are experiencing with Rome. And he has faith, faith enough for, to tell Jesus, hey, you don't even have to go. I want you to heal my, my kid, but you don't even have to go there. You can just say the word. You have so much power. He's like, I tell somebody to do it and it gets done. You can do likewise. He had faith. There's a woman so transformed by the forgiveness Jesus extended to her that she was actually able to wash his feet with the amount of tears streaming from her face. These are the people with soft hearts. Soft hearts allow the word of God the time and opportunity it needs to produce a harvest. 
So how do we do this? I didn't give much hope for the first three hearts. The hard heart, the fickle heart, the anxious and skeptical heart. I haven't given much hope yet. But that's where we'll end things today, with getting some hope. How do we develop a soft heart? First off, I believe it takes an act of the Holy Spirit. I believe it takes an act of the Holy Spirit. As I was praying about this and thinking about how to close things today, I was like, man, I don't care how much you break up the path. That ground is too hard and too compacted for anything to change that. And I got this image of just the spirit as, as a rain cloud falling on people with hardened hearts, softening the soil that we might be able to start doing these few things. And the first one is this. Tilling. We need to cultivate a soft heart. Just like a farmer has to prepare the ground for planting, we too have to prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Tilling, tending, and time. We have to do the hard work. You've got to break up the fallow ground, as I've heard pastors say over the last few months. We need to remove the rocks. We need to pull the weeds that are competing for resources. Tending. Any good farmer or gardener knows that a field or garden left to its own devices does very little and only gets worse than better. We have to tend to our hearts regularly. We've got to do it. What does this look like? Coming to church, sitting under solid, good teaching, whether this is your home church or you're visiting from somewhere else, I pray that it is a church that has solid, foundational, God-honoring teaching. It's participating in the Great Commission in that local church. It's putting your hands and feet to the work of the ministry and being the hands and feet of Jesus. It's reading books, listening to podcasts from people smarter and wiser than us, and most importantly, most importantly, it's through daily time spent reading God's word and prayer. Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. Then <laughs> the last one is time. Thank you. And time, it takes time. It's a lifelong pursuit. That's as, that's as simple as that one could be. This is something you need to do again every day, every day. So as we end, I really felt like the Spirit wanted to get me out of my own personal comfort zone with this. And so I'm going to make you get out of your comfort zone too. <laughs> so my prayer has been this week that as this message was being preached, that people in here would, tend, would actually feel the Spirit move in their heart as the heart condition you dealt with most was brought up. So whether that's the hard heart, the fickle heart, the anxious or skeptical heart, my hope is, is that the Spirit prompted you and said, that's you. That's you. Because we need the Spirit's power to move forward in undoing those things and to develop those soft hearts. Because here's the thing. The thing that we're resistant to is the thing that we need. And that's the word of God. The heart conditions we talked about are completely resistant to the word of God. But that is the solution that we need. And the first thing we truly need to be able to accept that is the Spirit's power in our life. I mentioned at the beginning of the message that uh, Pastor Marco has been going through a series called Jesus in the End Times. And this has been an intense, tough, challenging season in the church in a good way this these words have been brought with truth and with power but they can be uncomfortable and a lot of times it goes directly against the flow of culture and thank god we have a pastor that's willing to preach truth amen thank you yes we need this we need lessons like that we can't just have like paul said we can't just be on milk all the time we got to start eating meat church we got to start doing it so we need to realize that in these last days, we need to make sure that we're being shaped more by the word of God and less by the world. And that's where this message comes from. 
is, an un- is a place where our hearts are formed and softened that we might be shaped more by the word of God rather than the world, which brought me to a passage, and this is going to bring us to our conclusion here in the next little bit. We're going to be praying together. I really feel like the, the Spirit wants to do some work today. Um, but I was brought to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and, and Paul's writing to his protege Timothy, and he's saying, this is what's go- what it's going to look like in these last days, but I want you to be different. This is what it's going to look like for the world in these last days, but you're to be different. He says this, And these are the days we're living in. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, check. Lovers of money, check. Boastful, proud, abusive, check, check, and check. Disobedient to their parents even made the list. So kids, listen to your mom and dad. Ungrateful, check, unholy. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and the real nail in the coffin, verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. But Paul says this to Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, as for you, church, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from who you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it brings you into the knowledge of salvation. And that all Scripture is useful. It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The key to softening our hearts is the thing that our hearts are most resistant to so we need the spirit's power for this to work and i believe the spirit is asking us to take a step of faith today so for those of you here in this place we are going to end this service in prayer not our normal prayer i'm kind of taking a book uh, taking a page out of pastor's book here But if you in this message felt like you connected with the hard heart, the fickle heart, or the anxious and skeptical heart, I want to ask you right now in faith to just stand up. To just stand up at your seat. This is not to make you feel embarrassed. This is not to call you out. This is not to point fun. There's no judgment. There is no condemnation. This is a step of faith. Thank you guys so much for standing. That is amazing. Praise God. I'm not going to ask for your names. I'm not going to call you to the front. Nothing like that. Uh, For those of you who are seated, don't gawk, but look around. Look around, and I want to ask you now to stand up with them. And if you see somebody who has stood up and is dealing with that, if you're a friend or a spouse or and you know them, I want to ask you to place a hand on their shoulder. And if you don't know them or you're not with someone, you're by yourself, if you would extend your hand in a direction towards somebody who was standing, there are certain scriptures that I want to pray over us. So uh, I actually am going to read these because it's not because it's a magic phrase or something, but I want to get this right because I want you to hear this. And it's not about me. It's, it's just about God's word. So for each of you, I have a verse that I want to pray over you this morning. The prayer for the hard heart. If your heart feels like, a, like it's been trampled on in a compacted path unfit to produce a harvest, I want to pray over you John 10.10. 10. The thief, the enemy of our soul, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, but I have come that you might have life and have life to the fullest. Holy Spirit, I pray that this truth, that the enemy is a liar and a thief, and that the Son of God is the one who truly gives us abundant life, I pray that that truth would be sown deeply into these hard hearts this morning. A prayer for the fickle heart. If your heart is covered in rocks, and you find yourself going from place to place, thing to thing, person to person, job to job, thrill to thrill, 
I want to speak over you James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus, I pray for strength for those that need to persevere through trials and challenges. Give the Spirit a chance to clear away stones and expose good soil in their hearts that, you would, that they would allow your word to dig deeper into their hearts, Lord. Sow this into their departs this morning. A prayer for the anxious and skeptical heart. If your life is consumed with worry, if your heart bows down to the love of money more than it does to the love of Christ, if your security is found in your own ability to produce and provide, I want to remind you of Jesus' command to not worry and his promise to provide in Matthew 6, 33 and 34. He says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. God, would you remind them that you are a good father who cares deeply for them. Help them to put your kingdom first and not their own. And that their faith would grow as they see you provide for them every one of their needs. And a prayer even for those with the good soil. God, would you give us boldness to produce a harvest in these last days? Give us opportunities to share your word with others. Father, as we close, I just ask, God, that you would solidify these verses in these hearts this morning. And that, Holy Spirit, the, the rain of life-giving water would be poured out on these hearts, especially the hard hearts, Lord, that are so far from you. And God, give us the ability to do the work, the tilling, the tending, and give it the time that it needs, Lord. I pray for grace. I pray, God, that you would just speak to these people in a specific way that encourages them to continue walking in this path. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Lord, I pray that you, this work done here today would last into eternity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you guys again for getting up.